following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, I want to tell you a little story about my, my grandmother. My sister's here today, so she's probably heard my gram tell this story a billion times, just as I have. Um, but uh, my gram uh, was raised in the church, just like I was. Uh, she was raised in a different church than I was, and um, but there was but she has this great lifelong faith, which has been such a blessing to her children and their children and their children. <laughs> and one of the stories that I remember her telling me a number of times was about a time when she had to have a repair done on her car, and she didn't have the money. Well, she did but she hadn't given her tithe yet. Right? And um, tithe is just a word that means tenth, and it's, it's tradition in many church circles to give 10% of your income to the church. And uh, we don't make a big deal here at Artisan about that percentage, although we do encourage generosity and sacrifice in our giving to the church and to other organizations and things. But for, for my gram, the 10% was paramount. You don't give nine or eight or seven or five, and certainly not zero. You give ten, and it's the first thing you do when you get paid. So she got her meager check, and she needed this repair done on her car, and she could have paid for it, but she chose instead to pay the tithe. Did you hear, have you heard this story? Oh, come on. You're lying. I heard it like 50 <laughs> times. Anyway, um, it's a really actually inspiring story, because you can, and you can already tell how it's going to end, can't you? She paid the tithe. She wrote out her check to the church and and put it in the offering plate when it went around, on faith that some other means would come by which she could pay to have her car repaired. And as the story goes, it was like the next day, somebody just anonymously gave her money. And it just happened to be the right amount to get her car repaired. And she, I cannot believe that she's never told this story to my sister. You're ruining my whole thing here. Like... <laughs> Because what I was going to say is, like, she told this story to her children, and, and she told it to her grandchildren. She at least told it to me on more than one occasion. <laughs> she had learned that discipline of tithing from her father. And she passed it on down to my father, who passed it on down to me, and then she reinforced it. <laughs> and that's exactly what we mean when we start talking about our foundational value of roots, how the tradition of the faith gets handed down from generation to generation to generation. For the past couple of months now, we've been doing this thing where we're revisiting our five foundational values of awe, beauty, roots, community, and justice. And we're, we're in the home stretch here. We've got three weeks to do on this last value, roots, and then we'll be into Advent, if you can believe such a thing. Uh, but we're reaffirming the foundational values that we believe God placed on our heart when we, when we started Artisan Church a decade ago in hopes that doing that will help us know what he wants us to do in our next decade as a church. So let me show you, as I have done each time we've started a new value, what our roots value statement is. I'm going to put this on the screen for you and read it to you. We are deeply rooted in the historic Christian faith as revealed in Scripture and worked out in the life of God's people through the ages. Now what I would like to do, um, I, I think fairly briefly this morning, 
is give you three Bible verses and three lessons about roots from those three Bible verses. All right? Now, if you know me, you know it pains me somewhat to limit myself to one verse at a time. I don't like that thing of pulling a verse out of its context and like making it stand on its own. But in the, in the case of these verses, I think it actually works okay. Just know that um, it's going to hurt me a little bit to do it this way. <laughs> so the first verse uh, uh, is this. This comes from Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. So the first lesson about roots as our value. Roots tells us that the ancient paths are good. Now, not just because old stuff is cool, although that is often true, right? For some of us anyway. Some of us think that the old stuff is cool. The old one is always better. The new one's not as good, right? Guitar geeks, by the way, of which I am one, uh, are like riddled with this. It's a disease for us. No, I do not want the guitar that was built in 2015. I want the guitar that was built in 1969. And uh, I can't have it because Paul McCartney bought them all, right? (laughs) And they they cost $600,000, right? Some of us have the opposite affliction, right, where anything old is garbage. (laughs) Sometimes I think that that in church we have that opposite affliction. Something new, something new, something new. Give me something new all the time. Uh, no, Roots tells us that the ancient paths are good. And it's not just because, you know, it's, it's like a, a 69 Les Paul. It's because the ancient paths have been tested and they've been walked by lots and lots and lots of people. It's because the ancient paths help us transcend our limited perspective and because they allow the witness of the church to speak much more broadly to us in our time. One of my favorite Uh, quotations about uh, church life and Christian faith comes from G.K. Chesterton. This is what he says. This is our worship meditation this morning. Tradition means giving a vote to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy (laughs) of those who merely happen to be walking about. He's British, can you tell? (laughs) Thank you. Tradition is the democracy of the dead. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? That's the kind of thing that having a foundational value of roots can offer us, the democracy of the dead. So roots helps us understand that the ancient paths that the prophet Jeremiah mentioned are good. So here's the second verse. The second verse is from the book of 2 Thessalonians. This is a New Testament book. It's a letter written by the apostles to a church. So we might think of it as a message coming to us. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. Now walk with me here. The lesson that I think this one has to us, this might have lots of lessons to, uh, to give us, and that's true of Scripture a lot of times, but the one that I want to pull out of it is this. God communicates His will through Scripture and through tradition. All right, this verse here gives us a little hint of that. Right? 
Some of the tradition of the apostles came in the written word, the letter. This is one of the letters. It's very meta that he's talking about the letters in a letter. But some of it was passed down through the, what we might call the oral tradition. Right? It was passed down by word of mouth, by what they said to them when they were in person with them, and by the way they worked things out together. And I think we as modern slash postmodern Christians ought to expect to learn from both streams, both the written down stuff, which has stood the test of time and has become central for us, and also that which has been passed down alongside that. We should expect to learn from both, and sometimes the one can explain the other. This is why it might be said that the the most important word in our value statement for roots, by the way, can you put that back up there, the value statement for roots? There's a little tiny word in there that I often say is the most important word in the whole thing because it, it really helps you understand, as is so often the case, the little words force the, the meaning out. The word that I'm talking about is the word and. Right? And this is, what, this is what makes this value a little bit unusual for, for a church in our stream of faith, right? If we were Roman Catholic, it would be entirely expected that our understanding of Christianity would be based on both Scripture and tradition. Right? Matter of fact, that's, that's part of their stated tradition in some ways in response to the Reformation. When did Martin Luther nail his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door? What year was that? 1517, right? Good, good. <laughs> When was the Council of Trent? 1546, right? <laughs> Council of Trent said uh, in, well, in, the, in the Catholic Church, Scripture and tradition are equal, <laughs> right? It's almost like there was this Reformation movement and then they had to, to respond to it. <laughs> this happens in the church sometimes. People push the issue and then they push back and so forth. Um, you, all, you, you all know when the Council of Trent was. I know you're just being coy. <laughs> But our faith is founded on Scripture. Yes, we consider the Bible to be the final authority. Yes, to use the language of our broader church family, our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, we, we, can, we say that Scripture is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. But it would be naive to think that in the year 2015, we can just take our little Bibles. I don't have one up here. What a terrible pastor I am. Thank you. And, and say, well, all I need is this and this. I got my Bible. I got my brain. That's all I need. That would be folly. Because there's 2,000 years of Christian tradition that has helped us understand this. And twice as many years of Jewish tradition that, that has helped us understand it. And for us to be so arrogant as to say, all I need is Scripture would be a recipe for disaster. Right? And also, by the way, where do you think the Bible came from? How do you think it is that these particular 66 books are the ones that are bound in our Bibles today? Do you think that, that Jesus like, flung them off the clouds as he was ascending after the resurrection? <laughs> no. This particular arrangement of Scripture did not exist, I mean, the, the, the books existed, but the, the arrangement of them, the way we have it, was not 
listed this way for the first time until I think it was 367. So it's an absurdity in addition to foolishness. It's, it's a, a logistical, nonsensical statement to say that you, all you need is scripture, meaning this particular arrangement of these books. Because there ain't no particular arrangement of particular books without the tradition of the church to help us get to that point, right? All right, I was going to be brief and so much for that. <laughs> so what does this mean? One thing that this means is that whenever we find ourselves wanting to say something new, based on our understanding, even, of Scripture, there's, like, we should see the blinking yellow traffic light, <laughs> right? Maybe we should see the red traffic light. We should at least see a four-way stop, okay? You have to come to a full and complete stop before you proceed down this road of, of offering a new interpretation of Scripture. What makes you think that you can interpret the scriptures better than 2,000 years of Christian history. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm certainly not saying that the church's tradition is flawless. Right? The church has done a lot of terrible things. So what was, you know, where was their scripture, interpretation of scripture during the Crusades? They were reading it wrong. Right? Or not at all, maybe. I don't know. Presumably they were reading it. You could go on and on and on. But whatever kind of new interpretation, new doctrine we might want to explore, and there are some that I want to explore with you, let me be frank. But we have to be cautious. You proceed with caution if you value roots. If you don't proceed with caution, pretty soon you are way off the reservation. How many of you have been to a church that's way off the reservation? <laughs> yeah. Some of you are like, yep, and I'm leaving in about 10 minutes. <laughs> so that's the, the second lesson, right? No one's right all the time, but if all things being equal, we ought to trust our tradition to help us interpret the scriptures. Fair enough? All right. So the third verse, with the, the third lesson, um, is Hebrews 12, 1. I put a little snippet of it up here, but here's what the verse says, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Now, Bible nerds, help me out. What is the problem with Hebrews 12.1? It starts with the, third, the word therefore. And what is our rule? Oh, you guys are such Bible nerds. What is a therefore, therefore? If you see a verse that starts with therefore, it's not fair to start with that verse. Because whatever is about to be said is based on what has been written right before it. And by the way, I've never actually said this, but you might want to read, when you finish reading a passage, you might want to read the next word just to make sure that word isn't therefore. Because that might pull you into some, some conclusion that would be better than the one you're about to make. Right? <laughs> what is a therefore, therefore? Okay, so the therefore is... Um, he, he, in Hebrews chapter 11, he's gone through and listed all these, these famous saints of the biblical tradition and how they had faith. Abraham had this faith and Moses, faith and faith and faith. It's, it's really like a faithy book, <laughs> Hebrews 12, uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I could go on about, the, you know, I could do some exegesis with you 
on Hebrews 11 and 12 and, and tie them together, but that's not what I want to do right now. This is one of those times where I'm kind of pulling Hebrews 12 out of its context a little bit. I hope you will forgive me. I'm forgiving myself. But what I want it to say is that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The lesson that this verse, verse teaches us is that we are not alone. Is it not true that faith is hard? If you find faith easy, my God bless you. I, I wonder if you've, if you've really got it. <laughs> or I wonder if something might be coming down the road for you that's, that's about to make it hard. But since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the author of this book says, let us lay aside every weight, every fear, every doubt, every accusation leveled against us, every misstep. To say nothing of the sin that clings so closely, which is a very beautiful way of phrasing a very ugly truth, isn't it? But as we run this race, and we need to try to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, we are not alone. You can think back to all the biblical saints of the faith, right? And I think they get whitewashed sometimes. I think the stories get too quickly to the end sometimes. I think the the lessons and points are made too abruptly sometimes you look, let's take Abraham as, as one of the key examples from Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11. He's lauded as having great faith. Well, yeah, eventually. <laughs> and a lot along the way. And then sometimes not so much. He believed God enough to get moving, but then he's like, well, maybe I'll take matters into my own hands. And the promise that God made to me, maybe I'll try to make it happen for myself. And then that didn't work, so he moved on again and then did it again and then moved on again and did it again. These stories of faith are actually quite encouraging to those of us who are just complete dummies <laughs> about living our own faith. If you'll stop and read the whole story. But sometimes, even with that in mind, those biblical stories seem so lofty and inaccessible. Right? I don't think that in... 4,000 years or whatever, somebody's going to be writing a book about our shared faith that features me or any of you as the main character, (laughs) right? That's a pretty high bar. I don't know if we can expect to get there. So sometimes it's helpful, for me anyway, to think more about my gram (laughs) than about Abraham, might be helpful for you to think more about you know, a, a person in your life, a, a sibling or a parent or a friend or a teacher or a pastor or somebody who's made faith real and close for you. It might be helpful for us to go a few generations back and read the stories of our faith. The stories of the saints are not particularly popular in Protestant circles, and it is, it is a great loss for us. So that's the third verse, Hebrews 12.1. And, and the lesson is that, that we don't run this race alone. 
there's a great cloud of witnesses. But I have a bonus verse for you. And I actually have a bonus lesson for you too. And the reason is because I couldn't stop at Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 12.2 is even better. So it says the part about run the race with perseverance in Hebrews 12.1. And then what does it say in Hebrews 12.2? How do you run that race with perseverance? Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So we run this race with the great cloud of witnesses in what way? Looking to Jesus you see that once again, it's all about Jesus? Will this guy ever shut up about Jesus? No. <laughs> <laughs> Scripture, tradition, our family, our friends, our teachers, our mentors, our pastors, the only way any of those are any good is if they point us to Jesus. You just go back to the beginning of the book of Hebrews if you want the proof. Hebrews 1 starts out the, the whole thing that, that sort of is ha- finding its, its narrative climax in 11 and 12. The whole thing starts out with these words. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors. This is roots, right? In many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. And this is what this writer says about Jesus, which is so central and so crucial for all of us to understand. Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. So the last lesson is the most important lesson of all. If you forget everything else I just said, especially the date of the Council of Trent, remember this. We have roots because roots point us to Jesus. We celebrate roots as a foundational value of our church because our roots point us to Jesus. I want to do a little prayer exercise with you in closing. I know we already did our meditative prayer, but I have another kind of meditative prayer. So what I'd like you to do is, uh, once again, if you want to close your eyes, you can. We don't have to do that. It might be helpful for you to think through what I'm about to ask you to think through. I want you to visualize your cloud of witnesses. Think of family members, if that's a positive memory. Think of friends, pastors, youth leaders, mentors, teachers. Now, I know the, the, the sad reality is that 
some of the people in your past not only didn't help you by pointing you to Jesus, but they harmed you and made it more difficult for you to come to faith because of the words that they used or the actions they took. And I want to recognize that that is true. We need always to remember that just because somebody is older than us or has some history that we don't have, that they're right. That's not true. So if you can, to the extent that you can, I would like you to close off those particular people from this moment. I want you to think only of those people who had a positive influence on you and your faith. Think of the ones who are closest to your story who maybe had that one key conversation with you, who maybe said that one thing that that unlocked the truth for you. Be thankful for that person or those people. Say thank you to God for bringing them into your life. Now think of the ones who are more distant from you, the ones who you maybe never even met, the great-grandparents of your faith, the great-great-great-grandparents, the 14th cousins of your faith, the ones who you maybe only know through their writings, they are part of your cloud of witnesses too. So be thankful for them. Say thank you to God for them. Now imagine this great cloud of witnesses, the ones that were close to your story and the ones that are distant from your story. And imagine them gathering around you, bearing up every weight. As your story became part of their story, they became available to you for this purpose, to bear up the weight of doubt, fear, of the accusations and missteps and all that has gone wrong. Imagine them hearing your confession of the sin that clings so closely. They have their own. They understand. It's safe to say it to them. Imagine yourself doing that. Now imagine that you are on a road with them and that they all at once tap you on the shoulder to draw your attention to something that is up ahead. And what is it that they want to draw your attention to? It's a who, not a what. It's Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame 
and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. All of those people in your great cloud of witnesses are there for one reason. From Adam to your parents, siblings, teachers, and pastors who are still alive today, this great cloud of witnesses is there for one reason ultimately, and that is to point you to Jesus. So will you look to him as they do so and fix your eyes on him We celebrate roots because our roots point us to Jesus. Amen. Well, speaking of roots that point us to Jesus, this ancient tradition of Holy Communion points us to Jesus. And it's one of my great pastoral privileges to extend to you the invitation to the table of the Lord really on behalf of Jesus, who says, come to the table, eat and drink. So if you are seeking to follow Jesus in this place, if you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, our table is open to you regardless of who you are, where you came from, what your church history is. And I invite you to come and receive his body and his blood. He is present here at the table. You can tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice, choosing the one, of course, that would be most appropriate for you and for your family. You can go and get your kids if they're in the lessons, and you can bring them to take communion too and just help them know that this is, this is so that we can remember Jesus. If you are um, here at Artisan today and don't consider yourself a Christian and are still having lots of questions about this and don't feel like this would be appropriate for you, it's okay not to take communion too. I would encourage you to think and pray and meditate and observe and uh, trust that the Spirit will speak to you in this moment in that way as well. And if you'd like to receive personalized prayer, a member of our prayer team will be up here under the cross uh, waiting for you and being willing to pray with you about whatever might be going on in your life. So we'll sing a couple more songs together as we take communion before we end our service. Um, I invite you to come. The table is open. Hear his call. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.